Hello, Michael here with a quick disclaimer. The episode that you are about to listen to was originally recorded as a live event, meaning that it was recorded and streamed over our Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv slash the RPG Academy, or broadcast as a live event or recorded as a live event for our YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash the RPG Academy. Hopefully you will understand why the audio quality of this episode is not quite up to the same standards you have come to appreciate and expect from our show. And on the off chance that when you listen to this episode, you don't really notice a difference between this episode and a regular episode, don't say anything, because that will make me cry. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Detention Live, the show from the RPG Academy where we take care of you hooligans that are caught here in detention because you've done something very, very bad. I am Michael, also known as Professor Fluff around these, around these parts, and I have a couple of professors with me here tonight to help out. To my right on my screen is Scott. Howdy all you kids out there in Radio Land. And to my bottom... Not as dirty as it's supposed to be. Uh, Sean, also known as the Heavy Metal GM, who blogs over at heavymetalgm.com. Sean, welcome to the show. Hello. How's everybody doing? Doing well. <laughs> we all have allergies today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, we do. Means it's getting warm. All right. So we got chat room up if anyone is wanting to interact say hi in chat uh the last thing we do is we like to try to take some questions from chat so if we have any audience that we might be able to do that Um, i also realized that i didn't tweet out that we were going live so chances are less likely that someone will join us but we will power on anyways casual that's that's just fine yeah that's the way it works so here at detention uh we like to start with um extracurricular activities and these are the things that we do when we're not here in these hallowed halls uh Whatever's going on in our lives, it can be movies, books, TVs, hobbies, whatever you want to talk about. Um, Sean, since you're our guest, I'll let you go first. What are you doing besides RPG at the moment? Um, I've been horrendously off track with pretty much everything, which is not good. But um, I'm trying to get back on the horse and uh, put out some more blog posts, get back into editing for high-level games more, um, because I'm, I'm one of the blog managers over there. Uh, but other than that, I've just been putting my nose to the grind wheel, working every day and trying to make things happen, you know? All right. So any, like, reading any books, watching any TV shows? Have you been watching Legion or Expanse? Oh, I haven't, actually. I've heard so many good things. Um, actually, a friend just gave me his copy of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because I've never read it. And I've been meaning to pick that up and start tearing through that since it's a pretty small book. All right, cool. I've actually, uh, I may lose my nerd card here. I've actually never read that book either. I'm I'm somewhat familiar with it in broad terms, but I've never actually read those books or that book, I should say. That makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you. All right, Scott, what do you got going on? Uh, These days, uh, kind of a a mix of of odds and ends, home odds and ends. I, uh, chiefly among them, of course, is that uh, there was a, couple of games on sale on steam this week so i bought them not that i finished my last steam collection games but that you can always accumulate more i think uh 
in total hours of unplayed gameplay strictly increases, right? Like, you, you, you can never play games as fast on Steam as you can acquire new ones. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, working on that debt, I think. Um, uh, in addition to that, let's see. Um, we're, uh, Lawful Early had, a, had our first um, uh, off-season break episode, like a, like a mini-sode. We're calling them City Stories, where we explore the universe and, and don't dwell on the characters and kind of play it up and try different things with the system. And, and in that one, we, we tried really uh, improv-heavy, and, and we switched around characters a lot. And, and I really enjoyed it because... Um, uh, a, a chief complaint of, of a coworker of mine who who watches, uh, he says, you know, you have to pay attention to the whole thing, right? And uh, this you don't. You can kind of come in and out, right? You you can. I mean, it's it's kind of a struggle with live stuff, right? What you want to do right. is turn it on and then be able to like change diapers or uh, go get the microwave when it beeps, right? And come back and kind of still uh, keep tuned in. So um, I think that was more successful in that vein, and it was a lot of fun. So so that's that's what's been going on with me this week. All right, very cool. And then again, with those shows, they do end up on a YouTube channel within a, within a week or so, yep. which then gives you a lot more flexibility to do that. Watch on your own time. Yeah, situation. We, we release uh, on Tuesdays to YouTube, and we're we're uh, about a week and a half uh, behind. So the so the schedule is we release on YouTube just before they expire off of Twitch generally. So. Nice. All right. Very, very cool. Um, as for me, uh, as we mentioned last time, I was heading to Michigan for our faculty retreat. So I am now back from Michigan. It was a lot of fun. It was also a long drive. It's, it's the furthest I've ever gone for a convention. And it was sort of like our own little thing, which kind of makes me happy. Um, oh, of course. You live in Gen Con's backyard, you yes. lucky duck. Sweet I, summer child. Two hours. I got <laughs> to drive two hours to get to Gen Con. I got to drive it. Like an hour and a half to get to Origins, a couple hours to Winter Fantasy. So, like us flyover states, we do have some. uh, Not not all the flyover states. Uh, You know, it wasn't two years ago that it that it was longer than a two hour drive for me to get to the second closest mall. Oh wow! (laughs) Uh, But again, faculty treat was a ton of fun. Uh, A lot of the faculty went. A lot of the guys from Redemption Podcast who live in Michigan were there. Uh, DM Mitch and Ian from the DM's Block Podcast. They're local. They came over. We had a couple of our VIPs from last year's Catacon, Jen and Gina. They came up. Uh, They had a 13-hour drive, but but they said they had a great time and they're glad they came. So it makes me happy. Awesome. I did some playtesting of a couple of games I'm working on. I know Caleb did a couple of playtests for games he's working on. And I thought they were very good. Uh, and then today, I actually had another one of my little brain epiphanies for a hack of everyone is John. That is, John is everyone. And this conceit is that the game starts with our main character dying. And then its spirit, he or she, jumps into the closest body and they have a limited amount of time to fix something. So tell their wife or husband they loved them, stop a murder, uh, whatever the case may be, and they keep jumping body to body and the players keep rotating who's the host in until time runs out. And the rest of them, when they're not in the host, they're just playing a random schmo character or something? Yeah, they're playing the NPCs. Interesting. So I'm going to play around with that a little bit and see you know, what happens. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Awesome. So with that out of the way, Scott, what is our improv game for tonight? Uh, our first uh, improv game, we, we always start with uh, 10 things. So um, I, I guess uh, I'll go ahead and start with uh, you, Michael. Uh, okay. Michael, 10 things that are larger than a bread box. Um, a large house cat. One. Small pterodactyl. Two. Two bread boxes put together. Three. Like a Voltron bread box, I guess. Um. My house. Four. My kids. Five. 
My car. Six. Um, a giant loaf of bread. Seven. A pizza. It's eight. A lion. Nine. A tree. Ten. Those are ten things. <laughs> awesome. Some yeah. very large, some not so much. <laughs> yeah. Again, accuracy is not as important. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so we'll go a little bit different. I'm going to go back to you so that you can go to Sean last. Sure. Uh, okay. Scott, ten things that you miss about being in the middle of BFE. <laughs> oh, um, uh, not feeling bad about having doing nothing on a Friday night. <laughs> One. Um, being uh, relatively safe from terrorist attacks. Two. Uh, being relatively safe from shopping. <laughs> Three. Uh, not being able to be an alcoholic, because if you're at the bar past 9 o'clock, the bartender's staring at his watch, wondering when you're going to go, because he wants to leave. Four. Uh, uh, being a 15-minute drive to work. Five. Having a three-bedroom house for sale, a 15-minute drive from work for $50,000. Six. Um, uh, knowing where all the streetlights are. Seven. Uh, let's say uh, being able to hike and be outdoorsy anytime I wanted. <laughs> yeah, not really. Eight. Yeah, never being outdoorsy at all. <laughs> Nine. And uh, the radioactive waste. Ten. Yay. Yay. Those were ten things. They were. All right, uh, Sean, uh, ten things that scare goblins. Scare goblins. Okay, uh, first off, adventurers, of course. One. Uh, probably shadows of trees at night. Two. Two. The smell of their grandfather's feet. Three. Three. Not finding the right stone to make a spear tick. Four. Four. Not knowing when there's a tornado warning on the news. Six. Six. This is a very hard game. Oh. <laughs> it can be. It definitely can be. <laughs> you started strong, though. Finish, yep, man. Yep. Go. I did. I did. So I'm on six. Okay. Um, things that scare goblins. Uh, dentists, I'd imagine. Definitely. Yeah, seven. <laughs> uh, personal hygiene, maybe in the same vein. Eight. Eight. Sunlight. Nine. Nine. Carrion crawlers. Ten. ten. Those are ten things? <laughs> Yay, those were ten things. <laughs> very nice. Mediocre ten things, but hey, I, love <laughs> I liked them. I liked them. They, they were uh, funny. That's good. That was good. Yeah, I like that. Most clothing. Look at yeah. he's got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, again, thank you Fly for playing our our reindeer games. Uh, so now we will move into uh, used books, and used books is where we take a look back at a campaign, possibly one that failed spectacularly. And like any good used book, we're going to scour the margins for notes that were left behind to see what we could do better next time or what lessons we can learn. Again, Sean, you are, I guess, so talk about a campaign that you played in that did not go as planned. Okay, so this is going to be a bit of a cop-out, but it's not a campaign I came up with on my own. I was running a playtest for uh, Pelgrim Press. It's a module they've been working on for years now. I probably ran it two years ago, and it's called Shards of the Broken Sky. Anybody who keeps up with them has probably heard of it, but if you haven't applied for the playtest, there's really not much out there on it. Uh, this campaign was based around uh, the idea that the floating citadels of the Archmage were starting to fall out of the sky because of the, war- the wards on the Dragon Empire were failing. And the PCs were in this little town out in the middle of nowhere, and a floating citadel falls on it. 
and basically all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And the piece, it's very much players versus environment at first. And then it becomes um, players versus the unknown because you have to figure out, well, what the hell happened? You know, it's, why did this thing fall out of the sky? And that would be great. What can we do to stop it? So essentially, I was running through this module and 13th Age being the very improv heavy game that it is, I almost used none of it. I used the basic framework and then the rest of it was jumping off of everything that my players were playing. And we played probably about two sessions um, before it just fell off. Everybody wanted to get back to my main game and we haven't visited it in nearly two years now. Hmm. With it being a play test, it's not too bad, but everybody did really have a fantastic time playing it. And I'm just like, man, we, we got to keep get we got to get back to that. And everybody in the group's like, yeah, we should do it next week. Oh, and then we don't meet for a week. Yeah. And then it's back to the main game. Then, hey, whatever happened to Shards of the Broken Sky? It's just this like endless death cycle. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm my like, scheduling. I'm Seriously. a I'm a very big believer that you need to keep the game, is if at all possible. Even if you don't play that game, get keep the night. You know, so like if someone doesn't show up, still have everyone else show up and do something. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because when you start missing sessions, that's yeah. when things start to fall apart. Missing sessions is very habit forming. It's very addicting. It's, it's missing sessions is like crack. Not even once. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, if you miss one, then your whole life's to shit. You're just like like three weeks later, you just like got dice up your nose, right? Your life is in shambles. You haven't role played at all. It's it's terrible. Definitely, definitely. All right, so Sean, so so that's a, a little bit different of a twist on used books. But what do you think you can take from that? Other than missing sessions is bad. Is there anything about that particular module or anything that you did in that game or your players did in that game that will help you do other games better next time? I had to break the rules to keep them from dying in the first interaction they had with the main plot. <laughs> okay. And I, I have a, I have a little bit of regret on this, but uh, what had happened was, is they were exploring around the outskirts of the town and they found this guard post that was supposed to be, you know, hidden. They went inside and there was a portal up to the, the Citadel called dark sky, which is what fell out of the out of the sky and i was like oh you know i'm gonna make the dcs insane for them to activate this portal because they don't want to get up there it's about to fall out of the sky bus explodes it's so bad if, if you set a dc you're acknowledging the possibility of it being passed right <sighs> i know yeah. the, the, and sometimes you know, we, we always say we want to give players agency. We want to give them the option to do things. But sometimes you just can't. And yeah. this is one of those sometimes where I was like, It's hard to take that agency back. Like, ah, oh, crap. They actually went to the Sky Palace. Well, do I change everything that's in the Sky Palace? Or the, you, you enter a room with parachutes and a window. <laughs> that's it. Or, or that section breaks off and it's, it falls in a different rate of speed. You know, I think that's one of those perfect examples of where there's two camps, and, I, and I, I'm in these conversations a lot, probably more than I should for that, my personal mental health, where some people are like, you should never change anything. Don't fudge dice rolls, don't change DCs, whatever you set up at the beginning, that's what you have to do. And I, and I get there's a sense of satisfaction for a type of player that they they won and they know that they won. 
But I also know as a game master and as a player that if I die five minutes into that session, I'm not going to have fun. And then I'm going to be less likely to show up next week. So I, I think that's a perfect example of sometimes where you got to be a little flexible with the rules. That doesn't mean they're never going to die. But yeah, for the first five minutes, that's pretty rough to come back from. Yeah, it was, it, they, they had this awesome bit of role playing with this random NPC. Uh, we, had, we had a guy who was playing basically a pirate, an undead pirate. <laughs> and he was from this place and he was coming back to see if anything had changed. And he forgot that one of the people in this town was a warforged and he had been alive just as long as he had. Or unalive, I guess, if we want to be technical. <laughs> been around. Yeah, exactly. And the second he showed up, the Warforge recognized him, and he's like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. But he rolled with it, and it was great. It, it, there, it, there was not even a hiccup at all. Sounds like a fun uh, fun game. It's too bad that the uh, schedule got the best of you. Yeah. I, I will say, I, I think about 20% of the, uh, maybe 25% of, of the campaigns we talk about on used books die because of scheduling. Maybe more, maybe a third. Like, that is the death of most campaigns. Seriously, and it's, it's it, like you said, once you miss one, it's all too easy to miss the it, next. It's a slippery the slope. There. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a real tragic thing. I, on, on, the, on the topic of, of fudging dice and, and worrying about uh, player death, I read uh, by far my favorite 5e house rule ever, and I, now I forget the source, and I'd love to credit somebody for this. So if, if you're watching, please write me and let me know <laughs> how bad I screwed up. But uh, it might have been like Sly Flourish or somebody. But... Um, or it doesn't sound like an angry GM uh, tidbit, but but the the suggestion goes, um, you know, five E right? You you uh, hit zero hit points, then you start making death saves, right? And three successes, and and you're stable. You're not going to die. Three failures, and you're dead, right? Uh, and and the the house rule went like this: it's that um, players make all death save rolls in secret, even from you, which enables them to cheat. Basically, it, it allows them to do that same DM like I have a screen and I get to decide if this role is really important enough for me to fudge. And so when they make that third save and they fail, but they really love that character. Right. And, and they never tell anybody if they succeed or fail, not like on the first or second or third. All they do is, is they roll in secret and they tell you if, if they're if they're stable, if they're still in critical or if they're dead. Right. So so uh, they get to kind of write their own history. And, and I've definitely had a character that, that succeeded on death saves when I thought it'd be a, it would have been a perfect death, right? Like heroically charged into something, like, like had completed a good narrative story arc. I was like, this is going to be great. Of course he's charging in, right? And then, ah, oh, what do you know? Someone, like, stabilized me. I made the death saves. So it was really too yeah. bad. And I've definitely had characters go the other way, where, like, an errant uh, short sword, right, or a spear, just, just ended it for, for this really great, uh, juicy thing. We had to kind of, you know, like, oh, we're going to go get him from the, you know, the, the, the plane of the dead or something, right? Uh, that was uh, fun, but uh, just making those rolls in secret and, and deciding for myself narratively if I wanted that to happen or not, or just deciding I'd roll the dice and see what happens, I think would have been more fun. So that was from the angry GM, or at least, or at least he also does that. Uh, he was on a podcast, I think NPC cast uh, a couple of years ago where he talked about that. And then I think I've talked to him about that as well. Yeah. And it, it's, again, it's, it's a good system because only that player knows what they rolled and they don't, they don't say anything to anyone until it becomes irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So like, so then it yeah, also I'm stops rolling. Yes, well, true, uh, but even like uh, you know, because I've I've done this oh, as much it, as I it hate... also stops Kibitzing of oh, you have two more rolls at least. I don't have to heal you this right. round. 
Right. Again, they just and- know you've been bleeding for four <laughs> rounds. They have no idea how that's going. Right. And, you know, again, I, I don't particularly think metagaming is all that awful. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's as bad as some people say for, for various reasons. But I know I have done that where I've made choices in combat because I know that you've still got a, a role. I don't have to get to you this turn. And that's true. I mean, that is hardcore metagaming there because that's not what a character would really do. Well, it's hard to say that because some characters wouldn't care at all. They would just fight till so that they can live and then they would worry about you. But if someone's truly altruistic and they want to help you, they would go directly to you and not go, ah, I got two rounds. So let me kill this guy first. That's true. Um, actually on the, on the opposite end of the screen where I'm usually sitting, I'm pretty ruthless about that because, um, if, if I have like a slew of enemies that are even remotely intelligent and you get knocked unconscious, they're still going to stab you when you're unconscious to make sure you're dead. <laughs> so, so my players get a little, uh, they get a little aggravated with that sometimes, uh, depending on what we're fighting. But if, I only really do that if it's like an important fight where the whole campaign is hinging on it or something. Right. And that, that's a question, again, comes up a lot on Reddit and Facebook and other places where people say, should I kill unconscious NP, you know, PCs? And it comes down to one, the tone of your campaign if you're going for pulp action, then no. Uh, if you're going for like Game of Thrones gritty realism, then probably yeah. But it comes down to the intelligence of what you're fighting. Uh, you know, like an animal, like an owlbear, if you go unconscious, it might just try to grab you and run. You're food. You know, it just wants to get away from everybody else trying to poke it at sticks and it wants to eat you. So it might grab your body and run. Um, you know, something less intelligent may move on to the next uh, target. Someone more intelligent, like, hey, if I kill you, that's one less that's going to get back up. So, I, you know, I think more than anything, it depends on the tone. And the next thing would be the intelligence of what you're fighting and how ruthless they are. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's just always a fun thing to experience, though, when someone gets knocked unconscious, and especially in 13th Age, because PCs are nearly invincible in that game. Unless some... It's very swingy, but, like, if, if the dice are hot on your side of the screen... The players know it. Nice. So when, when you have an enemy walk over to the unconscious guy and be like, okay, rolling to hit, they're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean he's rolling to hit? <laughs> yeah, doesn't he automatically hit? Uh, not in 13th age. Oh, all right, all right, all right, interesting. So since we're on that topic a little bit, um, you know, you, you are kind of my go-to resource for 13th age stuff. Uh, you know, I've, I've said before, if 5th edition didn't come out when it did, and it was as much a podcasting decision as anything else. 13th Age is probably the game that I would play. I loved 13th Age when it came out. It still does a couple things as good as any system I've ever played. I like to steal from it liberally. Uh, I think their backgrounds is the most ingenious way to do backgrounds. I love the one unique thing, and I like the Escalation die. So other than, I guess I just ruined those three. But So sell me on 13th Age to our audience who may not be as familiar with the system. What is it about it that you love so much that that's become the focus of your gaming and your blogging? It's, uh, it's kind of a bold claim, and everybody gives me the eye roll when I say it. But I, I firmly believe that 13th Age is the perfect blend between um, mechanical crunch and narrative fluff. It has mechanics for the narrative. And you really don't really, you don't see that too much unless it's a game strictly about narrative. But there's still enough combat mechanics to keep, you know, the, the power gamer types interested. And 
that's pretty much been why I started. I started with fourth edition D and D, which is a very, very crunchy game. So yep. switching gears to 13th age, when that came out in the play test, I was just like, what the hell is this? And as I started to poke around and experience other games, it really helped me appreciate the genius that went into it. But you, you get a lot of guys also that play fifth edition. They're like, what? There's not three pages of grappling rules. What? There's no, you know, uh, will saves or dexterity saves or anything. It's like, no, you don't really need that. If you, if you can come up with a reason to make something succeed or fail, that's all you need. And if not, just use the base stats to roll a skill check. There's, there's no need for that added complexity. Very cool. Uh, for anyone that's not aware of what the one unique thing is, uh, it's basically during character creation with the approval and acceptance of the GM, you can declare something about your character that is just true. And it becomes true for the entire world. So if you say that you're the only elf with blue eyes, you're the only elf with blue eyes. And all of these things should be uh, like narrative or story based. There shouldn't be any mechanical benefits or bonuses behind them, though you can do that in the rules, but then you have to lose something else in your character kind of equal it out. But you can do a lot of interesting things. You know, you're a dwarf that was born from two elves. Um, you're the reincarnated, you know, uh, emperor from three ages ago. And you have all these really cool, interesting things about your character that you just get to say, this is true. And I love that. And it can always be as simple or as complex as you want it to be. Uh, one, of the, one of the most genius yet simple one unique things I've seen is I'm not actually a person. I'm just a sentient hat. <laughs> so the hat was the character. It was just inhabiting this particular body at this time. I, I, I know a game with a trench coat and a dinosaur that, that would, that's very similar to. <laughs> so, Scott, have you played any 13th Age? I mean, I uh, guess we played Secrets, Lies, and the Undead yeah. for a few sessions. I missed that campaign. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was it was a good one. I, I remember vividly uh, how horribly you you screwed us every single session. It was it was uh, diabolical, is what that game was. It was a lot of fun though. At least for me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was fun. I I enjoyed uh, you know looking at a building and being like, "Yep, that's gonna catch fire, and we're all gonna get stuck in." <laughs> surprise! Surprise! <laughs> That was an awesome moment, though. I love that. The whole building caught on fire when you're in the Batcave. Oh, that's such a good... And again, oh, we got Sean here. He's the 13th age guy. He misses that campaign, so you guys might have not enjoyed it, but the audience did, and that's yeah, all that's I cared about. Oh, it was a good thing. Uh, yeah. No, I, I did enjoy 13th age. I, I've uh, I've since run it uh, just uh, very briefly, intermixed with three other systems, so I've run, I've run like a total of 45 minutes of 13th age. And the thing that uh, I've noticed that really grips people is the one unique thing. Like, uh, the, the narrative power control that the system gives you right off the bat with character creation, and that's, that's been really exciting. If you can yeah. nail it down, the, uh, the icon relationships mechanic is really, really good for player agency, too. But that, that was really hard to explain in 10 minutes. It's so nebulous that yeah. you, you tell people, they roll it, and they're like, okay, I have this and this, but what the hell do I do with it? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah that, I, that, yeah, in, in Secret Lies in the Undead, uh, I was very wishy-washy on that. Uh, so sometimes I would use it, and sometimes I wouldn't, no matter what they rolled. I would be like, you know, well, I guess what I mean is uh, if they rolled something, I almost always tried to do it 
but if they didn't roll something, that doesn't mean I wouldn't have also had that icon influence if it made sense to that story type of a thing. Yeah. So I, I tried to use it, but I wasn't beholden to it, which again, I'm like that with every, every rule. So that's really not unusual for me. Uh, the other thing about 13th Aging, and I think does beautifully, is how they handle background points or whatever, background skills. Uh, I absolutely love it. I love how it can be a narrative aspect. Uh, again, for people who are not aware, and Sean, you may correct me if I'm wrong, you basically just declare your background. I was part of the Assassin's Guild, or I used to work in a circus, or I spent you know years as a scullery maid. Whatever you want it to be, and you spend points from one to four, at least at first level, and then anytime you can justify why that is, would help you in a certain situation, you can roll it. And at the same time, the DM can require that you give a specific example, like tell a story of, okay, so you're trying to capture a poisonous snake. You're trying to say that being a scullery maid helps you. Tell me that story. And then again, you have narrative to control to make up whatever story you want that becomes true in the past to justify why, you know, that one time I ferret got loose in the kitchen I had to capture it with a teapot whatever the case may be I just think that's a genius way to implement it and it's a genius way to give players narrative control in a way that can't really break your campaign well uh it, it can if you have creative players who invent skills that are so broad they'll easily justify anything right and true true but again the GM has to sign off on those to begin with and that's exactly what it is um I I have I've, I've played with people that you know come up with this backgrounds like jack of all trades and they want to use it every time they dump five points maximum into it i'm like come on man be, right. give me something <laughs> you know? and that kind of violates the spirit of the game you know like yeah. that's that's not what it's supposed to be for and yeah you might get that plus one more than me but that's not as fun if you're into if you're a min maxer then that probably is fun i um yeah i i will say that that uh one of the things i like about fifth edition D&D is, uh, you know, I, I've tried that out after 13th age, right? And uh, coming into it, reading through the DM's guide and realizing that a third of the DM's guide is basically just optional house rules. And that one of them was, you know, uh, very, very politely completely ripped off of 13th age. And, and it's, it's do away with skills entirely, just use stats. And then uh, your background, instead of giving you like two skills or four skills, uh, slash languages and, and a small ability, it uh, just counts as your skill. And you just get your plus proficiency bonus on your background. And then if you get expertise through something, it just qualifies for, like, your whole skill or something. Now, I don't know. They had some edge case rule point in there for it. But but um, I think it made the background. I like the idea that there was just one. And I like the idea that you picked it from a reasonable list. Like, ah, bounty hunter, right? Or a thief. And, or maybe instead you pick uh, city guard and you guys are playing a city guard campaign. And now you're just good at everything. So maybe it's still breakable. But, uh, yeah. I... I agree. I think uh, it was great insight on 13th Age's part, and I'm glad to see other people following up. Right. Honestly, I think 5th edition um, definitely changed the way I perceive D&D as a brand. Interesting. They're, they're definitely way more narrative open, I guess you could say now, especially coming from 4E, where it was literally squares and abilities, and that was it. You know, where... Yeah. Whereas in, in fifth edition, you have to have a background. That's a part of your character. And I, I really appreciated their gesture on that part. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I've played pretty much every edition of D&D at, at least once uh, at some point other than OD&D. And I think fifth edition is my favorite. I also like new stuff. So I have to, I have to go in knowing that because it's the newest and the shiniest, that might be part of it. But I do think it's a very good blend of D&D. It still feels like D&D, which fourth edition did not feel like D&D to me. 
Um, but it also brings in a lot of these things I, I liked about the older editions where the, G, the DM had a lot more sort of power and authority to just make rulings and not really so many rules. Uh, I really like that blend. And then circle back around in fourth edition. I think fourth edition is a fine game. I just don't think it's a good D&D game. I think, I, if they I think if they would have called it something else, it just said, here's a mini skirmish game it, based on D&D. It's, it's called War Master or whatever the blank you want to call it. I think it would have been fine. But it was such a radical departure from what people thought of as D&D that it had a hard time finding its footing. But it did bring a ton of people into the hobby, and for that, I do appreciate it. And uh, it brought a ton of people into the hobby, and I think it makes it a great former edition of D&D, right? Like, uh, it being the, the really the one and only selling all-encompassing brand, that, that, that chafed some people and really other people enjoyed it. But, but it being a past uh, issue of D&D, so that the diehard fans can still play it, right, with discount on the books because they're no longer the latest, right? And then mm -hmm. uh, the current edition of D&D just benefits from all of the amazing stuff they learned, right? I, I, you know, like, like, uh, you know, like mooks. Mooks were an amazing rule. They have exactly one yes. hit point, right? And there are optional rules for that in, in the 5th edition done DM's Guide, right? And bloodied. There were, like, a lot of fun effects that happened with bloodied. And, and so 5th uh, edition completely discarded that. I don't think I've ever seen mentions to it, except occasionally, like, monster epic abilities when they're below something, right? But um, yeah. but uh, it comes up... Uh, now Now that's, that's part of my now common tabletop lingo, even though we only played 4th edition, like, a very little bit. Now people are like, is it bloodied yet, right? Because um, they really... Uh, what what they're asking it's 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 a codified way to transmit like a, a narrative description of of how rough and tumble somebody's looking right like how beat up is that orc right and you right. can describe it like oh yeah you know it's blood from here and something else but but the the description uh, e even if it's fine does not have the 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 same information to the to the character that that bloody does like because you're an expert fighter you'd know when they're about half down so right I enjoy that. well and that, that's a well weird sort of mixture of like i'm a big believer that when you talk about hit points they should be considered health points if i hit you with a stick that doesn't mean that i've whacked you in the side and i broke a rib that means that you are now closer to You've been demoralized, you're winded, I've, I've used up some of your karma, your luck, you won't be able to dodge as well next and, time. And, and that would make so much sense if at zero hit points you retreated rather than fell unconscious and bled death. The, then when you died, so it's a way, like, so I don't always want to describe damage, you know, narratively when you're hitting something. I don't want to say that arrow went through their neck if maybe it just caused them to be winded. You know, it's, it's like, how do you get that dichotomy of, narrating damage on a creature without breaking the rule I have that it's not the same for characters. Bloody gives you a shorthand to say they're now halfway down. Even if I haven't described that their flesh is uh, hanging off their bones. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point actually. But I don't know if you hit me with a stick, I don't want to fight anymore. I'm, I'm all done. <laughs> I wouldn't appreciate that too whoa, much. Whoa. Whatever, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> my, whoa. Just, just take it. Just take it. man. I didn't sign up for that game, but actually um, uh, an interesting thing to talk about is that, a similar iteration of the icon relationships mechanic is coming to fifth edition. It is. Yes. I made it. <gasps> Look at that. It's um, it's, I don't know if you guys followed the Kickstarter, but dread unicorn games is coming out with this supplement called uh, the gods have spoken. It got kickstarted recently. It's been in production and I was in charge of the faction section, which is going to feel a lot like the icon relationships. Cool. That sounds awesome. Uh, where could people go to check that out? Do you got a URL or a website you could drop on them? Um, the Cods Have actually, Spoken, 5th edition RPG supplement. Uh, yeah, you can literally just look up uh, Dread Unicorn Games. 
on Google and you can find everything in there. Cool. Uh, so the other thing about 13th age that I really enjoyed was the escalation die, uh, which again, I think is genius. It keeps and things moving. So beautifully. Yep. So if, again, people aren't aware, basically after the first round of combat, you put out a giant D six on the table. At least that's what I do. I have a fist size one and everybody, all the PCs get a plus one to all their attacks to hit the next round. You get a plus two, next round plus three and it, it maxes out at a plus six and what this is supposed to symbolize is all the little minutiae tactics that you would use in another game like even fifth edition it's assumed that you're doing those things it's assumed that while you're fighting you're learning the opponent's fighting style while you're fighting you're you're getting to the best advantageous spot higher ground or behind a low wall or to the left of the guy if his arms hurt or whatever the case may be and that escalation die indicates that you're figuring out the battle and you're getting better and you're more likely to be successful in hitting without having to have all those little rules and stacks and, you know, whatever the case may be. It, it speeds things up, but it still allows you to, to simulate in your head. You're playing super tactically, but you're actually playing narratively at the table. Um, and I just I think that's a cool thing. And then there's there's things that interact with that. There's certain powers that you can't do to the escalation die at a certain point. Monsters have certain abilities that trigger on escalation. I think it adds a lot of depth and and strategy to the game without really making it any more crunchy, which I really enjoyed. Absolutely. And not only that, uh it's that's only a boon that uh players get. Only some very, very special monsters get to use the escalation die, like dragons, dragon soup. Yeah, and there's some monsters that can take it away or they can lower it, can't they? Like they can do a thing. They, they can mess with it. And there, there's actually monsters that can mess with your initiative too, which is pretty fun. You yeah, know, I think swap it, around initiative order and all that. It gives you some interesting design space. Like it's a concept that's pretty easy to implement, but it gives you a lot of things. Okay, here's a new thing that we can mess with. Um, and also like the idea that if the, the players aren't pushing the initiative, if they're not like being aggressive, then you can not tick it up or you can even take it down. You know, if a couple of people are hurt and they surround them and they try to heal them or they start to try to run away, that's not pressing the advantage. So the escalation die can go back down, which again is a mechanical way to represent the narrative of how the battle is flowing. Uh, like I said, if it wasn't for fifth edition, I pretty sure 13th age would be my game of choice. Well, I feel bad because this kind of turned into like a 13th age advertisement when I, that was definitely not my intention. But. No, <laughs> it's, it's a great system. I mean, again, I, if I didn't like it, we wouldn't have spent so much time on it. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed the system. And, you know, again, that's what you do on your blog. You spend a lot of time talking about 13th age, just like we spend a lot of time talking about fifth edition or in some cases, D&D in general. Um, so I don't I think it's fair game for conversation. We, we, we were having fun. So we were doing this right. That's Look right. Look at that. Bam. Mic drop. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> so but to um to oh, talk ahead. talk again about how how my PCs made really bad decisions and almost destroyed the game first off. Uh so they they activated this portal using backgrounds figures and um they teleported themselves up onto this big flying island and it turns out that it was a prison there were guards walking around they were like okay this is weird and then the the ground lurched under their feet and the thing started plummeting to the ground while they were on it. And it turns out they actually had to use their, um, one of the characters, the, the undead pirate, had a relationship with the Lich King. And he spent the six that he rolled with the Lich King. Now, when you, when you have an icon relationship, you roll a D6. It's at the start of the session every time. 
only fives and sixes count. A five is you get a benefit with a drawback, and then a six is just a benefit, no drawback, no strings attached. So this guy spent his six that he rolled with the Lich King to basically not die, to cheat death. <laughs> Him and all his friends. Seems like good call. And I was just sitting there like, oh, God. Nice. It was, it was pretty brutal. So I think those are, um, within, again, within the narrative, I, I would assume that that means they had a positive relationship with the Lich King. Uh, he didn't. He he was actually in debt to the Lich King. So the Lich King was like, no, 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 this ain't going to be so easy for you, pal. Ah, so, so, I was just thinking, like, if, if that had happened in a game, like, say the, the character had a positive relationship with, 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 with whoever, and they wanted to use that to not die, probably would let it, but I would then tell them, okay, but your relationship is now considered uh, conflicted. Because that was a huge favor, and it changed the dynamic of the relationship. So it happens, it happens within the rules of the game, but there's still a consequence. Yeah. And that, you know, it drastically changes how, that, how that's going to work in the future, or at least for a while. Yeah, I, I, the way I kind of described it to them as the reason why they were able to use a six relationship with a negative relationship icon was that, A, he was cursed. He was cursed to a life of undeath from the Lich King. So um, in that point, that, that turns into the negative light. But it's positive because him continuing to live means that he can help all his friends that have now been smashed by a giant flying island <laughs> so <laughs> exactly i know one of the things that i did in our secret lies in the undead game i really enjoyed is um caleb's relationship to the to the jack was it jack of shadows the prince of shadows prince, prince of, of shadows. shadows um his he had a conflicted relationship and i played that off as if the um prince of shadows really liked him and kept doing favors for him and it made Cable's character a target because it's like why are you helping me I don't want you to help me because people know you're helping me and that makes them not like me so it was a way yeah. to make a, a fun situation out of what was supposed to be a conflicted relationship yeah he he didn't intend it to go bad but it always did yeah. or frequently <laughs> it was great it was good nice Sorry, I'm trying to check, trying to check on chat over here. We have a couple of there, people there's, watching. There's uh, uh, an amazing observation in chat right now that that uh, really uh, taking your children through the Tomb of Horrors is payback for having to change their diapers. <laughs> Looks yeah, like the shit is on the other hand now. <laughs> the, depending on where you are in the dungeon, it could be literally. Mm, yeah. Thanks to <laughs> Eric Regan. That's that's a good one. Nice. Actually, so, uh, uh, have you guys looked at the Tales from the Awning Portal yet? Has anybody played the Tomb of Horrors and that? Is it any good? I haven't. I, I have not checked out the book yet. I did play the first session of a someone else's uh, adaptation of Tomb of Horrors into 5th edition. Mm. I hated it, and I refused <laughs> to play the second session. Like, we played it, and we couldn't finish it, so we stopped it. And I'm like, we are not doing that again. At least I'm not. Because wow. I, it was maybe the worst experience I've ever had playing a D and D game. Because, but that's what it's designed to do. But that is completely opposite to the way I like to play. It was, it was a lot of that doesn't work. Can't do that. That doesn't work. You can't do that. That's just not. That's just not how I enjoyed the game. So I was just like, I'm not having fun. Um, and actually, uh, one of our bonus episodes we released last year. There's a blooper reel. And my favorite part is is from that game. And again, if you don't know the story, you probably don't get it. But but Nick, uh, you hear him say, 
oh, I died. I figured it out. I'm free. Like that was the way that you won that game was to kill yourself. That was the way to win. The longer you live, the worse it was. And it was just, oh my God, it was so hilarious. So that definitely made it into that blooper reel. Uh, I love that. I'm free. I, I really think that just sums up the Tomb of Horrors in one statement because that module is brutal. It, it is. And I mean, again, there's all the, the history to it. It was specifically designed by Gary to punish players who had gotten so powerful and they're so cocky. He's like, okay, I can, we can handle this. But again, that goes against everything I believe about Dungeons and Dragons is that the DM has all the power. If they want to kill you, they can kill you at any time. They can just put something against you that has more hit points than you can possibly take care of. Or, you know, you fall off a cliff that, that you know, it's, you're going to take a million points of damage when you land. They have all the power, but they have to cede that power to the players to a, to a point, to a balance that makes the game fun. And I don't need a Tomb of Horrors if I just want to be an a-hole DM and kill you. So I don't understand the necessity of, of it just did not make sense to me. Like it was just not fun. And for me, that's not doing it right. So I was just like, nope, I'm done. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. Uh, from, from what I gather, you and I have very, very similar play styles. <sighs> <laughs> well, and again, I, the model of the show, we have fun doing it right. Fun for each person is different. Uh, again, our, our motto means everything and it means nothing because fun is subjective. And what I right. think is fun, you may hate. What you love, I may hate. Um, so it kind of comes down to the table, to the session. As a, if, as a group, we all had fun, then that was a great session. It doesn't matter if we were playing sentient hats on dinosaurs, if we were playing dragons, or if we spent the entire session in a tavern playing a game of poker and just talking about what happened last week. As long as everybody's having fun, that's all that matters. Um, but there's still things about different play styles that, are less likely to be fun for me, I think. That's actually a good point, especially in relation to uh, the Shards of the Broken Sky game, because when they had successfully activated that portal, I wasn't having fun. I was like, they're going to die. I have no choice but to kill them right now. <laughs> and this sucks. <laughs> right. But they managed to pull it out. And, you know, that I, I thought that was, especially in hindsight, at the time I was like, that's such a cop-out. But, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, that was pretty cool, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so while, while we're on the, co- the topic of fudging, because that's something I'm very passionate about, let's, let's hit on that a little bit. Uh, so I'll start with you, Scott. What is your viewpoint on, as, as a player and as a DM, on fudging dice rolls? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if, if we have not uh, beaten this topic to death, certainly I will. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll... I'll Fudging dice rolls. I I occasionally fudge dice rolls. Um, when when I DM in person, I tend to roll two d twenty behind the the screen, and then after they're rolled, I decide if the character I was rolling for had advantage or disadvantage, or I'm just using the one on the left. I don't know. Um, so that that that's kind of a fundamental slant. I uh I I, I will often fudge uh, hit points of monsters either up or down. If I don't want this crap to live another round, then then what do you know? All the monsters die one hit, right? And if if I really wanted that dragon to have extra epic impact, right? If it really needed to kidnap that one NPC that's been traveling with the party and useless for a long time and fly back to its lair, then it will probably have at least barely enough hit points to make it, right? If 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 you <laughs> wound the crap out of it, the advantage is that, that it'll leave a huge trail of blood or or something, right? It'll be super wounded when you get there. Like you will accrue some benefit for beating the living snot out of it, but 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 uh for the for the purpose of this this next scene, I'm I may 
fudge its its abilities. And I'll also, you know, add abilities to monsters or take them off, as as the case may be, right? Adding powers to monsters that stop combat uh, can be really narratively handy, right? If if you need that big bad evil, uh, you know, monster who who comes in and says stop, and and that comes across as as like a DC twenty five command that everyone literally stops, so right. that, that uh, you know. Uh, you, you, we can have that scene of, ha ha ha, these were just my minions and something something, and then you have to go do a level up three times quest and then come back and defeat him, and then he'll forget to use that power. You know, he used it earlier that day, it's a once a day. Funny, right? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, uh, long story short, I, I believe in uh, fiddle-futzing around with stuff as, as long as it doesn't make anyone feel cheated or robbed of anything. I think that's important, right? The monster doesn't live so that it can keep on living. It lives so it can die another day, another session, right? Two sessions later, right? Um, and, and, and so that you'll kill it in its lair when you get all its loot rather than killing it out here in the woods where you found it, right? Um, right. And uh, as, as, as long as it's, it's in service to everyone having fun, uh, then, then yeah, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in it. The, the rules are there to support the, 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 the experience, not the other way. It, it, yeah. I, I think for me, because I've gotten to a couple very heated conversations about this uh, a couple different times, that there's a DM for a reason. Like, there's a reason why we're not just playing Neverwinter Nights on our computers. Like, there, there's a person that's making choices. And to tell, to say that as the DM, I have the ability to decide what you're going to do. So I've made up the campaign. I know there's a dragon over there. I know what level it is. I know what hit points it has. I know which NPCs in the town are secretly working for it. I know how many goblin ambushes there are on the way there. I've made all these decisions. And then to say that once the game starts, I no longer have any decision-making capacity doesn't make sense to me. Like I decided you were going to fight two ogres instead of two Ettons. Mm -hmm. So why, why in the middle of the battle can I not decide that one of the ogres had a bad breakfast, they had bad taco dip, and they, they had 10 hit points less than they, they should have had. Or that, you know, that person, that, that ogre is very health conscious, and they have 10 hit points more than they're supposed to have. Like, I don't know why, why the decision-making process stops when the game starts, as long as the reason you're doing it is for the benefit of the story. And what I mean by that is, like, it could be pacing. You know, like, if we're getting close to the end of the session, and I want to have a good cliffhanger, so maybe that ambush I had planned just doesn't happen. You know, the players never knew there was supposed to be an ambush. They just, there isn't one, uh, you know, because it's not there. Or if they're going really quickly through all my monsters, maybe I'll have four more show up that weren't supposed to be there because I feel like they need to. I, I just, it just literally makes no sense to me that someone would say the DM can do all that decision making, but they're not allowed to make any decisions once the game starts. One of the things that I think I do well, it's harder to do in virtual, but on the table, I'm good at reading people. I'm good as part of the, what I did for many years as a job was directly dependent on reading people. So I'm reading the table. And if I see somebody who's not having fun, they're bored, they're looking at their phone. Maybe they just been having really crappy roles or maybe they've been having, you know, before the game started, they were talking about how they at work, their boss got onto them and they're worried about losing their job or, you know, whatever that I might give them something, you know, like they've had some really crappy roles. I might give them a moment so that they can have a great moment that night because I know they need that. You know, they've had a really crappy roles, so I, I let them kill something that maybe it should have five hit points left. Okay, it's dead because I wanted them to have the last kill. I, I just don't understand why anyone would say, no, the DM can't make choices once the game starts. It just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, PB Dragon actually made a really good point. How he's saying, uh, he, he said, he always rolls open for the players. If they can't fudge, I shouldn't be able to either. And uh, I think... 
I I agree with that philosophy to a point. Like if if I'm making a role that completely changes the characters' lives, I don't mess with that. I roll it open and they see it and they live with it. But when it comes to like a the random orc encounter in the woods, you know, yeah, I still roll the dice and I may or may not bump it up or down one or two points just to change the actual outcome to make it either more fun for them or if they're trouncing all over the combat, make it a little more difficult for them because I don't, I, I like to keep them in check. You know, if you let them go too far one way, they get arrogant. And if you let them go too far the other way, they're not having fun. They just get trounced yeah. all the time. Why, so. why, why should we make the players suffer from my shitty planning? Yes. If I was so terrible at planning this game that I made way too much of an encounter, way too easy of an encounter, and it would disable their fun. Like, like, it's, am I going to punish them with that? Like, well, sucks to be you guys, because I'm worthless. I had a bad day yesterday, so. <laughs> right, when I talk about fudging, I, I'm very, very less likely to roll a d20 and go, no, that's a 7 instead of it's a 15. I'm going to be more like, this thing has 100 hit points, but now it only has 75. Because the pacing's everybody's slowing down. We're just slogging yep. around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's, in yeah. my mind, there's no difference between those two things. But I'm more likely to, to add in an enemy that wasn't in my notes because they're going through it too fast. And that's not to say that every mm-hmm. combat has to be the same difficulty. I do think sometimes you should have easy combat so the characters feel awesome. And sometimes you should have really hard combat so the par- characters realize there, you know, there's danger in the world. But on the whole, if they're just walking through the entire adventure, then I planned it poorly. So I think Scott's exactly right. Why should the players suffer because I planned for you? Let me audible. Let me make choices and changes in the game because I'm reading the table and I can see if people are having fun. I can tell if they're engaged. And if they are, then, I, then don't change anything. But if they're not, change something. That, that's why you're there. You're not a computer program. So that's what I mean by fudging dice. It's not really changing dice. It's just making choices behind the screen on hit points and powers and abilities and that kind of stuff to make the game more engaging. Yeah, I uh, agree. That, that said, um, you know, having uh, thought about it and, and uh, the, the comment about PB and, and you guys talking about the different, you know, as DM, there are a lot of tools to fudge. Maybe my next game, I'm just going to start rolling in the open. There are plenty of other levers I have to make sure people are having fun. And yeah. being able to see the dice result, uh, maybe even when you don't know what it is, and those like I'm making a perception check for something that's hidden and trying to see you or whatever, right? Those thrilling moments. Rolling in the open might be even more terrifying and uh, thrilling to, to players than rolling hide close. So maybe I'll start rolling openly and uh, see, see how that goes. I think you guys might have convinced me to try it out. All right. Very cool. Let us know uh, how that goes. As soon as I get an in-person game going, you'll be the first Yeah, there's that. Okay. (laughs) All right, so I think it's time to close up used books, and uh, we need to move into our last segment. Do do we do the thing before or after Cryptozoology? I can't remember the Uh, the order. uh, I I don't think we have an established order for for these. Let's let's, uh, do an improv break now. We'll we'll play a rousing game of Where Have My Fingers Been? (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right. Let's get my fingers warmed up here. Did you want to start, or do you want me to start? Uh, you start. And then you'll give it to me? All right. Yeah. All right. Where have my fingers been? Where have my fingers been? Barovia. Ha <laughs> my darling. I'm so glad you've come. Oh, I, I have no recollection of how I got here. I just woke up and... Oh, my darling. 
I want to suck. Oh, I'm just an innocent poor farm golden. Oh, my darling. I'm so into... Oh, you're so... Oh. <clears throat> Look, Harold, I, I just can't do this anymore. What? Run, darling, I put in the teeth. It's Tuesday night. This is what we do. Look, it's it's just it's not you. It was it was a hard day at the mill. I I can't keep pretending to be the head of Barovia. <sighs> is it's is this about Harold at the Smithery? No, it's not about him. I'm so look, stop comparing yourself to him. You have serious confidence <laughs> issues. Well you're not making him any better. <laughs> and that's where my fingers have been. <laughs> have been. Oh man, I do not even want to uh, to venture if that was a window into your actual life. So we will just move the flank on. I, I really, really hope not, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we we can we can chat if you need to. That's, yeah, I'm always here sweet. for you. I, uh, I I do make an incredible damsel in distress. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael, you're up. All right. Where have my fingers been? I said, where have my fingers been? The overdark. I don't know what that is. Just make up an understanding of what you think it is based on the word I said. The overdark. <laughs> Why is it so dark here? Uh, because we're in the overdark? Makes sense to me. <laughs> and that's where my fingers have been. Ah, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. All right, Sean. All right, inevitably. You're up. Where have my fingers been? Where have my fingers been? Uh, To the archery practice range. Hey, Joey. Target a little bit more to the left. Thwack. Ah, my leg. Dude, you hit Joel. Joel? No, he's he's over there. Oh, maybe that's Harold. I don't know. You guys all kind of look like fingers to me. That's slightly rude, you know that? That's generalizing. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm not really with the whole PC culture thing. Hey, that's getting political. Don't do that. Yeah, you're right. Maybe we should leave. One more shot? One more shot. Yeah, that was better. <laughs> and that's where, and my that's where our fingers have been. It's <laughs> good. I liked it. Awesome. That was so a good. Complete arc, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you told, you told a story. Yeah. I just wanted you were gonna leave the guy. Oh no. We've lost oh no, Michael. Michael froze. He'll he'll be back in just a moment. But you were gonna leave that guy like wounded with his knee? Is, is that uh, probably what he was gonna say? It's not their job. Yeah. That's they're point. just bowmen. Yeah. They're, they're not yeah. medics. <laughs> they don't have wheelbarrows. <laughs> Yeah, I apologize. My internet's cut out twice now. The first time, I don't think anyone noticed because I wasn't saying anything anyways. Um, So, all right. So, let's move into the last segment of the show, and that is um, cryptozoology. This is where we take a monster out of the monster manual, and we talk about about it, how we've used it before, how we might use it, mechanically, how it works in the game, if there's anything interesting about it. Um, And Sean chose Vampire, or Vampire, or Nosferatu, as our uh, monster. So, I'll start with you, Sean. What is it about vampires you like? When have you used them? What what do you like to do with them? Okay. Um, so actually recently in my main Saturday campaign, they had just defeated a vampire that had been around since the very start. Uh, they first ran into this guy at level four, which was probably two and a half years ago now. They're level seven now because it's 13th age. Level cap is 10. The progression is way slower. And... Back in the day when we leveled up slow. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But um, 
they they thought they got rid of this guy and he came back and you know started to mess with him a little bit but when they had killed him the first time well killed him um he turned into a mist now generally you would think oh you know either it's it's dead or hey that's a vampire they didn't think that they just said oh we're done with him let's move on and I was just so dumbfounded by that, considering they knew what he was. And I was like, wow, this is genius. This, this creature did its job, and I didn't think it would. <laughs> you know, uh, vam- vampires just make the best evil villains because they, they symbolize everything that's horrendous about humanity, in a way. They're smart, yet they're animalistic. They're charming, yet they're just downright evil. You know, they they look like us, they act like us, except for when they don't. (laughs) Hmm. All right. So what about you, Scott? Have you had any exciting experiences with using vampires in your game? I I really have. Um, uh, Sorry, typing and talking. Difficult to do at the same time. All right. Um, I I ran a... uh, I hate to spoil a good enemy, so I'll say I, I, I ran a, a recently released fifth edition um, uh, adventure, and uh, it, it had a, a vampire toward the end. Uh, it was it was one of the first real high level monsters that the party fought, and it was definitely one of the wor- the the first ones with with weird, interesting powers, right? And uh, it it was a lot of fun. I think by far the 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 most fun part, the, the most fun thing I did was really exploit the spider climb. Uh, and, and some of the other abilities of, of the vampire, right? We, the, the combat took place... Uh, we weren't using the, the lair rules because it wasn't that high a level of vampire, right? It was like the entry level, like CR 9 or 7 or something vampire. Uh, but but I, I used a ruined tower uh, where, where the combat uh, happened, and, and I mapped it out. But um, it, was, it was so decrepit inside was that the, the, the idea was that to... Um, you can move anywhere, and, and I... I modeled it out not uh, horizontally but vertically, right? So I so I drew the, the the tower in profile, and the idea is is you move vertically or horizontally just on your normal grid, um, except that to move uh, horizontally, uh, uh, what was it? To to, to move, uh, you, you could either move with acrobatics or athletics. Uh, it was either like a right a climb check or a balance check, and then uh, the DCs of those were different depending on where you were, right? Like the the lower down you went, the more decrepit it was. So so acrobatics check DC went up. Athletics check was higher DC overall, but flat, right? So it, it kind of gave a non-uniform topographic surface for, for players to be uh, and, and to be moving when, when depending on wh- what the players were and what they were specialized in. And then uh, gravity, if you slipped, you'd, you'd fall into the muck, and that was kind of a trap situation, right? So we had a couple of people who were down there trapped at different points and hostages. And we <laughs> also had... Um, uh, you know, the, the vampire and the vampire spawn all have spider climbs, so they're just whipping around, right? And the vampire itself had a, a free move to disengage and not provoke opportunity attacks. And so the vampire had all this mobility in this ruined tower and would, would just go and screw with somebody else, right? So I, I could keep, a, you know, I had a big party. It was like six or seven players. And, and that's always tough without, uh, you know, you end up, uh, if, if you play it crummy, you just knock two people out of the fight immediately and they don't get back up until the, it's over, right? Which is not fun. So, right. uh, but, so I, but I got to exploit the mobility and, and engage uh, people kind of asymmetrically, right? Like, like go up and engage the wizard who's hiding in the back trying not to move and, and challenge those terrible DCs. Um, and, and, and then zip away from the wizard once the fighter gets up there and go engage with somebody else. So, so I, it was a fun way to keep people on their toes. And uh, all of this adventure and excitement was 
Uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that other part in a second. But but I really enjoyed the the terrain part. Okay. So my um, my history with vampires started with Salem's Lot, the Stephen King book. It's still one of my favorites, and then the Fright Night movie, and so it, it kind of fall, falls into that uh, idea I have that you know characters starting like low levels or even starting as like nobody's children or NPCs. Vampires should be this unholy thing that you don't really have a chance to kill unless you are very brave or stupid or lucky. So D and D vampires never really appealed to me a whole lot because they were, they were just a bag of hit points that had a couple interesting powers. Um, and you know, probably that's me running them poorly, but you know, obviously, uh, but I looked at the fifth edition vampire today and it's, I like the way they've added the layer abilities is that was, it feels like a vampire to me. It feels like those are the things that a vampire could do uh, so that you do have that, that misty step where they can get away. They're bound to their grave. Their, their castle can affect the, the, you know, the region around it. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, wow, that's, that's a really good representation of a vampire in D and D for, in my opinion, the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think the layer abilities for a lot of the high level monsters in fifth edition, that was a great addition, right? It was really thematic. I, I mean, so often you, you pull up the monster and then it just shows up in the middle of town, right? It, it, and, and you're missing the whole ambiance, right? It's, it's, it's a nice a mechanical way to reinforce good playing, which is to layer on the feeling of engaging a vampire. Well, one experience I had as a player that I thought was kind of funny. Uh, my friend, Rob uh, was, this was one of my days in Cleveland. He was running the game and in my mind, it was, I mean, it was super obvious that we were facing a vampire. Like, I just thought it was like, there was no subtext. It was text. There was, a, they were a... Avant uh, to suck your blood. Well, well, well we never... <laughs> <laughs> well, we never interacted with, the, with him. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the name, but the, the name was like... Count Von Suck Your Pants. Something. It was something that was just straight out of, <laughs> out of that. They were a noble that lived in a castle up on a hill overlooking a village. There had been mysterious deaths in the village. We were invited to a dinner party. And I mean, so, it was like... That's a Scooby-Doo. That's, yes. Everyone so, so, knows uh, what's happening. But, but not everyone did. And that's the thing that, that drove me crazy. Or I, I didn't understand. So it's like we're like sneaking through this castle. And I, as a player, I look around and go... So we all know this guy's a vampire, right? And and everyone looked at me like, "Oh God, I should have prepared different spells." Like, why don't we have silver? Like, it couldn't have been any more obvious that we're fighting a vampire here. And no one else was on the same page. And it was it was like hilarious at how in, uninformed they were. They were like, literally, why didn't you say this before we came down here? I could have prepared like my daylight spell. I was like, I thought you knew. I thought we all knew. I just, you know, it was like metagame. I didn't want to right here. Huge. <laughs> Side of the wall. <laughs> Vampire this way. I had the exact opposite problem recently um, because I introduced an NPC who was a vampire, but he was a good guy. He, ah. he was, you know, he was, he was one of those guys that thought, you know, humans were interesting and I want to live amongst you and blah, blah, blah. I, I put the lawful in lawful evil. You can make agreements <laughs> with me. I'll follow up on them, right? He said two <laughs> words. I didn't even do a voice or anything. They were like, yep, he's a vampire. I'm like, what the hell? How'd you know that? <laughs> <laughs> that's it now he's a mummy turn some pages <laughs> get back to this i was pretty upset he looks at you through his bandaged eyes and says good guess 
Um, I guess apparently I can't do a mummy voice. Uh, so, so the other, the other thing I was going to bring up that I liked about the this fifth edition vampire was that they had some some uh, some mechanical options that were good in combat, but that were amazing before combat. Uh, that, that was lead as a, used. A, I used it to to harass the players uh, leading up to this combat with his vampires, and that was uh, it's like a hypnotize or mind control ability. And uh, with a ridiculously high DC uh, for for that level, right? It's like challenge rating seven or nine, and the DCs like in the high twenties, low thirties, like they're they're gonna fail, right? Yeah. And and that was really fun, um, you know, to 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 do ahead of time a little bit and, and sow some inner descent in the party, and then uh, also during combat to uh, you know to to flip some people and and uh, cause the spellcasters to have to go, you know, stop the stupid barbarian from doing stupid barbarian things, right? Um, but, but the, the out of combat a- applications of that, especially if, if this is not just supposed to be, I mean, in, in the, the, the handout that the, this, the adventure that this vampire was in that I ran, uh, it, it was really just like, a, and there's a vampire, right? Here's a monster. Here's some challenge training. Right. But, uh, if, if, if you were making it an even longer thing than I did, uh, like the, the, that mind control, uh, can be the setup for a whole, uh, scenario, right? In a town. I mean, not, not just the people are disappearing, but people are like changing their votes. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, so, and the, the the mayor of town is suddenly all in favor of opening that blood bank. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. And again, I, I, I think that's how vampires should be used as like manipulators behind the scene. Like I don't I don't want my players just drawing a sword and stabbing a vampire. I, that just doesn't mm-hmm. work for me. I want it to be almost like an environmental effect that lasts for you know multiple sessions where why are people acting this way what you know why are people now looking at us as the bad guys like i said because they're being manipulated they're being mind controlled some in some cases they might just be evil and they're being you know uh they're part of like what i can't think of the name right now the the people who serve the vampires they're whatever those are called or oh, just vampire spawn well, well there's a there i can it maybe it's all it's, it's like the werewolf who protects the vampire in fright night or whatever that was. Um, but yeah, so the people who work for the vampire are normal people. So they go out in town and they're doing things and, you know, maybe good people are being bribed and they don't want to do it. And they don't know that it's a vampire. They just know that if they don't do this, then people are going to find out that they did this thing that they don't want anybody to know about. I just, I think that is the way a vampire should be used and not just a, and then they stab it with sword. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I think I cut you off, Sean. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, I think the scariest thing that I saw about a 5th edition vampire is triple-digit hit points. Knowing how, like, deadly that game is, I'm like, what the hell? Well, uh, to, to, to be fair, and, and uh, I thought that too, but but uh, if you get focus fire from four players of a reasonable challenge rating for that, like, they'll they'll bring it down. I mean, well, yeah. uh, like, like the triple-digit is, like, low hundreds, right? I mean, uh, at, at, that, at the same equivalent challenge rating, dragons are pushing, like, 240 or something hit points, right? So... So like it's 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 more frail and uh you know no epic resistances and lower armor class so I'm trying to think what the hell uh, I think 13 day vampires are pretty robust themselves I, uh yeah 220 jeez so yeah I, I ran a, no uh, another session that, that that's focused on vampires kind of incidentally there was a vampire family that that I'd I'd written as as an information source right for this uh, like a city watch precursor game that I was running for lawful and orderly. And uh, it was it was a fun campaign, and uh, but but 
uh, the, the the combat that they got into with this vampire family that was originally supposed to just be a source of information, but they're like, you know, they're vampires. They're up to no good. Let's investigate them, right? And I was like, well, technically, being a vampire is illegal. Okay, City Watch. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here we go. And uh, they they ended up having a like a two or three session combat in in this this vampire uh, house and then lair underneath. And I got feedback from one player who, uh, you know, great guy, long-term friend. We've gamed together for a long time. He's like, that is one of the best D&D combats I've ever had. He, he was like, uh, you know, we, well, we at some point the party was split up and we were trying to achieve three objectives and, and there were there were uh, monsters pressing into all of us, but but for different needs, right, and at different times. And, and some people were doing fighting retreats and other people were like trying to advance and, and there were acrobatics moves and, and there were like uh, shortcuts through through this this kind of maze of a puzzle of, of a couple of maps I'd put together. And, and there was some environment things and damage. And uh, yeah, he's like, that was a really fun deal. And I was like... So Yay! I think uh, going maybe along with the lair and along with the tower thing, I'm, I'm learning that, that uh, the monster manual is only full of 10% of what an encounter is, right? Yes. The monsters, but it's all of the other stuff, right? If, if the monster is the peanut, you need to build the M&M. And I think, I think <laughs> you could say that about really any role-playing game. That when, when you pull an enemy, it's just a stack block. You've yeah. got to build everything else around it to really make, hammer that home. And as as Erica mentioned in chat, um, and and I've I've read this to be true, but now I really want to play it. Now that we've been talking so much about vampires, uh, this this is why Curse of Strahd is such a great reboot because this this feeling of, of vampires being uh, kind of a, a manipulators and and a, a boogeyman and, and distant threats that are that are kind of beyond you, right? Uh, that that combination of ideas is is really present, um, and in the environment, right? I mean, Barovia has always been really in the environment, but uh, yeah. So, oh, the artwork alone for that book, based off of what I've seen, I'm just like, oh, I want to play this so bad. <laughs> it looks so good. Mm-hmm. I make myself a note right now. Start campaign. <laughs> oh, get me on the horn. I will play that. Get on horn. <laughs> <laughs> Never remember what this meant tomorrow. <laughs> nice. All right. So, any uh, anything about else about vampires before we uh, start to wrap up? Um, they're the perfect apex predator that can hide among the herd. I mean, what else do you want? I like you know? that. I like that. And I, yeah, I think uh, they can be really, really colorful and fun. You, you can use a lot of small ones. You can use one big one. You, I mean, there's there's uh, a lot of great ways to dice that up. Do you, um, I don't, I don't know if it's in fifth edition, but I know it's part of sort of the, the tropey beliefs that if you kill the progenitor vampire, you can free, uh, that, the other that, vampires. that, that is in, in fifth edition mentioned in, in one of the stat blocks, at least like, like thralls and lesser vampires. If, if you, uh, it mentions that if, if you kill the, you know, the, the one that progenitored them, right. They, they have to obey them, right. If they yeah. exist and are alive. So, uh, yeah. So that, that opens up some possibilities that, you know, makes the vampire not even necessarily the big bad. You kill the vampire, but it was the offspring of a more powerful, older, ancient vampire that's mm-hmm. now like, hey, you just killed my favorite kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, it's a way to sort of pull the curtain back and, 
you know, they killed a vampire. We feel great about it. And then a couple of sessions later, oh, that was bad. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, uh, you know, it's, it's funny you bring that up. I, I pulled a reverse thing in, in that uh, Law and Order prequel game that I ran. Uh, that, that family of vampires, right? It was supposed to be a talking encounter. And so I put in a few levers for the players to find. Right. And one of them was that uh, the, the, the side of the family that was undead was the lower status side of the family, unlike you'd uh, usually assume. Right. And so the, the, the current head of the family, the, the oldest, the patriarch, uh, he had a signet ring and it was magically inscribed and it required loyalty of all of the descendants of his bloodline. Right. Uh, who were undead. So presumably that signet ring would be handed down to the living people and the living people. Right. Are much more vulnerable to like political leverage, deception, uh, arrest. Basic yeah. things, right? Uh, only having like 20 or 30 hit points, right? And so I was like, oh, this is going to be, you know, definitely a talking encounter, right? They're going to figure this out. They have some leverage. It'll be great. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Never. Yeah. All, all players end up like uh, Malcolm Reynolds and Firefly. You run when you should fight. You fight when you should run. Yeah. I enjoyed that tautology. That's That's great. Nice. Right, that leads back to the fudging of dice thing because there have been so many times where I had to bail my players out. Yeah. You know, one of the rules I've always lived by is that, um, never fight something as a player. Never fight something the GM doesn't have stats for because you cannot win that fight. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's like if they have it written down. I mean, even if you fudge or not, but if they have it written down what its armor class is, you missed. If they have it written down how many hit points they have, it still has more. Yeah. So yeah. So if if you know that the, they don't expect that to be a fight, then I just I'm just like, I'm not going to fight that because it's not going to work. I remember in, in uh, high school, early college, early role-playing, uh, we had we had one player always in our group who, uh, no matter what system we were doing, uh, we started with GURPS. And so there, in GURPS, there was an advantage called common sense. It's like 15 <laughs> points. And, and basically, the, the written text of the rule was that the DM will give you a gut check whenever you're doing something really stupid. <laughs> and, and so the rule of thumb was that he always had free common sense, no matter what character or system he was playing, because he would always do the most, like, are you really sure you want to do that? And uh, yeah, it, it uh, <laughs> definitely nearly got us and a bunch of innocent dwarves killed at least once. Nice. All right. So, uh, so we will all but wrap up. We will throw it to the audience for any questions. I see we do have a couple people in chat. So if you have any questions you'd like for us to tackle, please throw them in. And while we're waiting on that, because apparently there's a bit more of a lag than I thought, because uh, someone who asked some questions last week, were like, I still had more questions. Uh, so let's, let's kill some time with what about players being vampires? Any experience, any thoughts on letting player characters be vampires in the game? I've, I've done players as undead when you could get a, like a level adjustment plus zero undead template, but uh, vampires, I've never done that. Well, unless you're playing like Vampire the Masquerade or, or a, right. a system where that's a basic assumption. We're all werewolves, right? right? Now, I'm talking about like typical D&D, typical 13th age. You have a player who's like, I want to be a vampire. And so when they get to fighting a vampire, am a vampire. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we, uh, our first 13th Age campaign was Ravenloft adapted to 13th Age. And my one unique thing was I'm a 2,000 year old drow vampire. They were like, oh. I was like, yep. And I'm obsessed with pocket watches because time is interesting when you're immortal. <laughs> What's your one unique thing? I'm a 2,000 year old drow vampire. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a thing. Yep. That, yep. That is that is unique. That's that's not just like you having uh, blue hair. That's that's yes. that's a thing. Though I would argue that that's two 
things because you're yeah. a vampire yeah. and you're 2,000 years old? Well, it's, 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 maybe the combination is unique. There are plenty it's of drow. A, there are plenty of vampires. And there, and there exist some creatures that are 2,000 years old. You're really the only one that is all three. Yep. That, that Venn diagram was just three bubbles right together. Now, See, I was never challenged, so I never thought about it. But thanks. Yeah, now I have an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So it looks like we have a question in chat here. Uh, Scott, can you read it? Because I have to like look like a moron if I try to read it on the other screen over there. Yes, yes. Uh, we, we have a couple of questions. We have... Uh, uh, well, we we have a comment from uh, Erica. If there's a corollary to uh, your comment, that if you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, tr- true in so many aspects of life uh, and in role playing. And uh, uh, at any level, uh, you're attacked by a hundred of something. What one hundred things? So, is this something we want to be attacked by, or something we would be terrified to be attacked by? Unclear. Unclear. Uh, yeah, I, I think see, that's, uh, that's due to the, the time lag, you, you, you pick how you're going to answer that. Um, so I'll say what I would want to be attacked by. If, uh, if it's a hundred things, because that, that's, you know, that, that's like the duck-sized horse or the horse-sized duck situation. That's a lot of things. That's a, that's a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I would say stormtroopers, because they're all going to miss. Not if you're playing Age of Rebellion. They are horrifying in that game. <laughs> but they could be mooks, and then you can take them out swaths at a time. That would be pretty fantastic, actually. I, uh, <laughs> I think I would want to, it is, in a D&D game, if I were attacked by a hundred of something, I would want them to be uh, animated platinum coins. <laughs> <laughs> um, that could still be pretty terrifying, though, like they're trying to get into your orifices, yeah. orify. Oh, that... <laughs> I mean, that's just Whoa. not. Oh, yeah, that's... that could be t- that could be Whoa. bad. Oh, we don't need to talk about non-consensual <laughs> eye coinage. Best case scenario, though, some somebody's creepy grandpa would be happy because he'd be finding coins behind your ear for the rest of eternity. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Look what's behind your ear. That's not where. That's not the only place it is, Grandpa. <laughs> I've seen things. <laughs> um, if I had to choose, there'd probably be like homunculus or something homunculi i guess just because they're so they're not really intimidating hmm. all right all right, all right 100 all right. unseen servants <laughs> anybody feel a draft what's <laughs> what is happening <laughs> they, they they could like keep tying your shoelaces together so like every yeah. time you get up you fall over mm. They can put a lot of salt into your food so you get, like, uh, heart disease. Oh, I would yeah. just try to buy, like, a Zorb or something. Put myself in one of those big, like, bubble things <laughs> that people roll around in. Maybe a hundred Terrasks, because a hundred is no more intimidating than the one Terrask. It would be over so quick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or is there some... Is there something we could get that would they would then fight each other? Like, if there were a hundred of them, they would, like, ignore us, and they, we could just sort of... Highlanders. Quiet. <laughs> actually there's probably somebody you could ask about that isn't there uh the i, I feel like a jerk because i can't remember his name the guy who made the uh the salt and moons setting uh john arcadian yeah he no, probably no, no. knows a lot about terrorists no that's so. not uh jm perkins he's the one who did salt and wounds uh john arcadian recently did a a supplement on how to run terrask encounters yeah so that's that's perfect i mean Ask him about that one, how quick it would be over with 100 tasks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> pretty, pretty much instantly. 
All right, so uh, we'll take a, a couple second pause. So if there's anyone else that would like to ask any questions, uh, if not, we will wrap things up. So uh, pause for station identification. Uh, yep. What, uh, what are we do, drinking do, do tonight? We have, do we have any sponsors? I'm, I'm drinking. Me, I'm drinking. I'm drinking Gansett. Just because it's cheap. What is Gansett? I've not heard. Narragansett? You've never heard of Narragansett beer? It's like the the famous thing from Jaws. No. Oh man, There's I thought that was the shark. Well, yeah, but like this, it was like a running <laughs> I, joke. I Maybe it's because I'm from the Northeast. Uh, I don't know. It's it's a local beer, and local they beer. talk about Narragansett in the movie. And it's like a big joke up here. So. Okay. Um, I uh, I'm drinking water with a uh, cucumber slice in it in my limited edition laser lithographed uh, RPGA glass. Nice. I'm drinking water. I'm gonna have that for my uh, collectible movie themed cup here, oversized. Man. You guys make me sound like a booze hound over here. Like, I'm the only one drinking beer. No, yeah, you usually need... I'm the only one drinking water, so. Yeah, I was all out of L8. It's my ginger ale drink, so I had to go with water. <laughs> ginger ale is the best soda ever created, hands down. Oh, I love it. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I recently realized it has a crap ton of sugar. I'm less impressed. I, I try to drink soda water a lot because it has the same, like, the fizziness deludes me into thinking I'm drinking soda, but there's zero <laughs> things bad about it. Like, no aspartame, no sugar, no caffeine, like nothing that I will well, chemically regret later on. That's that's what I've realized about beers. Like, I drink beer, and then I'll, I'll, I drink a lot of seltzer water, too, and I'm like, hmm, maybe I just like it because it's fizzy. It's and then I'll have a really good, like, double IPA or something. Oh, like, yeah. No, no, I definitely no. like beer. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was pretty good. But, uh, All right. you know, it's, it's good. All right. Well, I think we are out of questions. Uh, again, thank everybody who joined us in chat. Uh, I wasn't able to keep up with it great tonight, but it seems like you guys were enjoying uh, each other's company, which is what we want. Um, I will plug a catacon. The Kickstarter for Catacon 2017 goes live next week on Thursday. It'll run for about a month. Uh, if you are thinking about coming to a Catacon, please go ahead and support us through the Kickstarter. If you're not coming to a Catacon, but you still want to support us, we will accept donations. Uh, and we want as many people as possible to use the Kickstarter because it helps us out. Uh, Scott, anything from you? Uh, nope. No uh, news. Catch uh, Lawful and Orderly uh, Monday night starting at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight and, and roll your clocks back for wherever you happen to be. Uh, yeah, we've got two more weeks of, of fun, exciting, improv-heavy stuff, so even if you're doing laundry, tune in. It'll be fun. And uh, the most recent episode that hit YouTube is the one with guest star James D'Amato from the Fantastic One Shot. Yes. I, I'm, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm guessing that was a good one. It, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, he, he, he rolled in strong. He was uh, tired from some other stuff, but, but he rolled in with this amazing uh, uh, author who was all, who's uh, with the police for a ride along. And oh, it's like since, Castle. Yeah, since he was also there for the penultimate season semifinale, uh, there was a whole lot going on in that episode. So uh, two exciting reasons to tune in. Fantastic. All right. And Sean, what about you? Anything uh, you want to plug or any last words before we roll out? Uh, if I can not be a slouch this time around, maybe I'll sponsor a table at a catacomb and the Kickstarter goes up. Uh, I met to last year and I dropped the ball and didn't before it went down. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> yeah. Apologies. Apologies. Um, but if anybody's looking for me, you can find me on pretty much all my social media platforms uh, at the heavy metal GM. Just look for the red die with the devil horns in it. And uh, that's that's all I got. You can find me at heavymetalgm.com for my content. Fantastic. So thank uh, Scott, Sean, thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, thanks again, chat, and we will see you next week. 
So we'll wave everybody out. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.